everybody, this is Todd McFarland, creator of Spawn, and you're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. No better place to be. All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, Nick and myself chat with iconic comic artist, writer, and founder of Image Comics, Todd McFarlane, about the origins of Spawn, going against the grain, creativity, competition, and more. As always, thank you all for listening out there. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Todd, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, yes. fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Yeah, out of the womb. That started out of the womb. So, <laughs> yes. If you ask my mom and said, why is Todd like he is? She will say there was never a day that he wasn't, right? So I, I, I was trouble from day one. I remember I, my mom got called to the principal's office starting with kindergarten, and it was a pretty steady phone call. Uh, you got so I was on first name basis with all my principals. Yep. What was the first offense in kindergarten? In kindergarten, it was I drew. It was weird. I drew. I think we were doing like some painting or drawings of like Bible stuff or whatever. And I, and in my mind, Adam and Eve were naked. So I, I guess I put a willy on Adam, <laughs> and so they called me and my mom in, and I don't even remember like even going to church at that time because I'm you know not a not a believer but mom was like what and she stood up for me i remember mom going what are you kidding me you're calling me in here because what like he was the kid was supposed to put a leaf on like the kid didn't even know he was taught adam and Eve came into the world like he's just drawing what we taught him so whatever anyway but, <laughs> getting there's getting those anatomy studies in early yeah and i'm sure it wasn't correct i just like whatever i just i don't even know what i drew but i know i didn't put i didn't make it I don't even know what I put for the girls' woo-woo because it looked a long time before I would have seen one of those. So, uh, <laughs> but anyways, I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe I should. I, maybe they just wanted me to just do like naked Barbie cans, you know, where they're in Anyways, and then it just and then it just began from there. So, what about some of the earliest books and comics you were reading as a kid? I didn't start collecting comics till I was about sixteen. So. I mean, the odd time I, I recall having, if we were going on a road trip, you know, dad would stop at the grocery store or the 7-Eleven, which were pretty new. I was living in California. And, you know, here, here's a chocolate bar. And then they'd buy a couple of comic books and throw them in the back. But I mean, that was about sort of the extent of it. So it wasn't, there wasn't anything hardcore, not until I was about 16. So I, I... I, I've often said I was sort of the opposite guy, right? That I, at that point, I had a date. Uh, she would grow up and we would grow up and get married later. 
I sort of started dating girls, then started collecting. Usually it goes the other way, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're a geek from five to 10, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, she's beautiful. And you fall in love with people. I was a weird guy. So I started collecting at that point. And it wasn't that I collected anything with a fetish. I, I just started collecting everything, Marvel. And then said, well, I'm going to collect Marvel. Why not DC? And then DC, and then eventually companies like First Comics and Pacific Comics and alternate stuff came out. I, I, I ended up getting all of it. And I ended up working at comic shops and being a psycho. I mean, I had a collection of about 25,000 at one point. So I, I had a lot. So you mentioned you know you didn't start collecting till later. You were sixteen, but were you a big big reader before then in general? No, um, I, I mean I, it's a weird, you know what it's a weird one. That definition's a weird one because my wife scratches her head and is frustrated to some extent that like you don't even read books, Todd. I don't understand how you can be a writer <laughs> and how you can do whatever. Like I like because she's she's a professor with a master's degree, so she's super intelligent. And I try to remind her that it's like, well, her name's Wanda. Well, Wanda, no, I do actually read. What I don't read is a hundred pages of the same topic. I don't do that. I'm and I and and probably a lot of that came because I had a brother, you're younger, brother, you're older, and we were into sports, right? And to this day, this is true. I don't really I'm 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 like a savant with sports. I'm like a sports fanatic. But ask me, like, how many games that I, do I watch? And the answer is not many. But what I do watch or what I do read are the ones that within 40 minutes, 30 minutes, I get all the highlights of 25 games. So I'm, I'm a guy. So she thinks I'm not reading. I go, well, no, no, no. I, I read a lot. I just read, like, about, you know, 120 articles, about 120 topics a day. So that I I know I'm one of those guys. I'm just dangerous enough to know a little bit about everything, you know, <laughs> all the way around. Instead of sitting there trudging through a 400-page book about one story, just you know, I, any more than I want to watch a 10-hour movie, I just like no, I, I'm good. I'm good at two hours, and then if I got another two hours, I will go to another movie. Right? I don't need. I read. I'm just not. If you said, what is your favorite book? Then it's like, shoot, right? Like, I, I couldn't give it to you because I don't really, I, it just sounds weird. I don't really read books. So, I mean, I'm talking about novels. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right, I got so, you. Speaking of movies, uh, were you into television or movies as a kid? I think my my bad eyes came from sitting too close watching TV way too much. So, yeah, I watched, I watched way too many cartoons when I was a kid. I don't know how old you gentlemen are, but the way that it used to work, because, again, I'm a kid of the 60s, right? They had... In the, in the very beginning in the morning, there was like cartoons on. So you could watch cartoons while you were getting ready to go to school. And then they mm -hmm. had early morning afternoon cartoons. So as soon as you got home from school, like three o'clock, that was a big time for you came home and you go, oh my God. And then there was like a couple more cartoons. That's when Speed Racer and Kimba the White Lion and all that stuff came on, right? And some of the superhero stuff at that point. But yeah, what do you talk about? I sadly watched way too many <laughs> cartoon shows, right? But in the process of that, let me just tell you, in the process of that, I also had to absorb a lot of commercials. And there's one commercial, like I keep telling people, but my, a lot of my life sort of motivation are built upon a couple commercials. But the one, the one that had the biggest impact on me, and it's still to this day is sort of my North Star is the one with the big cool dude, big fuzzy brown dude with the cool hat. And he would look at me because it came on all the time. So probably I saw it eight times a day. And the big dude would come on there and he'd point 
to me and he'd go only you and prevent forest fires when i was like seven and eight i went man you're talking about a lot of forest fires and then by the time i got nine i must have got a little more sophisticated i just went wow he's actually not talking about forest fires he's talking about me and my life and be responsible for it and stop passing the buck todd that it's your fucking life and you don't get to basically push it off on anybody you own every single action and emotion in your body period period so i've only taught my kids two things one don't talk if you're ignorant about the subject and two never ever tell me somebody made you do something because nobody on this planet has dominion over your body to make you act or think a certain way you choose every one of your decisions. Now, I'm not saying that your decisions, whatever they are, good, bad, or indifferent. That's a whole nother conversation. But what I'm saying is if you're at a bar and somebody bumps you and you go, hey, excuse me, but you know, hey, cool. And then he bumps you again, poof. And you say, hey, dude, I'm sitting here. Like, you mind a little bit of space? And then he pushes you that fourth time, the fifth time. And then finally he goes, fuck you when you say something. I'm not saying that whatever your reaction is, good, bad, or indifferent, but what I'm saying is even if you choose not to walk away, if you choose to punch him in the face, and I'm not saying that's not the right move, there's no human being that can make me make a fist right now. There's only one human being on the planet that can make me do that, and that's me. So even if I choose to punch him, it was my choice. I get it. He pushed me eight times and invoked and, and provoked me. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. But I'm saying that my decision to make a fist and throw it back is me. So I have to deal with whatever those consequences are of throwing the punch. Good, bad, or indifferent. So I just don't have patience, gentlemen, for excuses. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I get pretty black and white about stuff. And my wife thinks it's way too simple at times because she goes, well, people don't have the luxury to just do what you're saying, which I'm just going, you don't like your boss, fucking quit. <laughs> like, like you don't like the weather where you're at, move to a place where you like the weather. But what, what, what we do, which I don't have the patience to do, is talk by the water cooler about stuff that you're never going to change. So if I'm not going to change something, I don't talk about it. I usually have one priority in my life and everything else is white noise. Everything else is white noise. So let's say my priority is I want a brand new red Corvette. It's going to cost me 50 grand. All right. My goal, I got to get 50 grand. Do I give a shit what my job is? No. Nope. Do I give a shit whether I get along with my employees? No. Nope. Do I give a shit whether I get along with my boss? No. Nope. The goal is $50,000 in a red Corvette. Because if the answer is, well, I want to get along with my coworkers, then that has to be your number one goal. And the Corvette has to drop. You don't get it all. Wow, I want a Corvette and I want to have friends and I want to get a good salary and I want to have a nice job and I want the weather to be nice and I hope that I could go on a steady date and have good relationships. I get it. I get it. You want everything. So do the rest of us. Get in line with the 8 billion other people on this planet. Give me one, chew it like a bone, like a dog, accomplish it, and then move on. Or you can change your goals. I, like to me, I don't care. If you want to change from having a Corvette to saying you want to go to Greece or you want a 60-inch TV, I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. Then just drop the number one and put it, you can never have more than one number one. I've had people that work for me go, man, Todd, 
you know, I'm young and I can't ever afford my own house and I wish I could buy a house. And I'm like, sure you can. You can buy a house. What are you talking about? What's a down payment? I need like 15 grand. Shoot, this is easy. And I walk them down into the parking lot. I go, which one of those cars is yours? Sell it. But how do I get to work? What? That wasn't your question to me. You didn't say, how can I have a house and how do I get to work? That's a compound sentence. There is a comma. I thought it was a period. When you said, how do I get a house? I thought it was a period at the end of that. I told you how you can get a house. Now you want, so now we got a different set of dynamics. You want a house and you still want to keep your car. Okay. Well, then don't go on any vacation. Well, yeah, but I like going. Okay. Oh, you want your car and you want your house and you want your vacation. Like at some point, we move from attainable goals to dreaming. And there's a difference between dreams and goals. Everybody always says, ah, you can accomplish all your dreams. Here, here, I'll give you my definition between a dream and a goal. A dream is I'm going to jump off a 50-story building and I'm going to wish that I have sprout wings. That's a fucking dream on the way down. <laughs> there is no goal that will get me to sprout wings. That's a dream. Now, if I build an apparatus on my back so I've got some kind of parachute or something else, whatever else, then the goal is like, I don't want to squish when I get down there. I mean, there's a way to get there. But I think we mix up those two words way, 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 way too easy. Goals are attainable, potentially, potentially. I'm not saying you will get to them, but you can set goals and then move towards the goals. Oh, by the way, if you make bad moves, the goals become very, very hard. If you want to be the president of the United States and a drug addict, I think that's going to be a really deep hill. I don't think those two are compatible. There are pitfalls along the way of life. And I think it's what most parents do for their children. If my kids came to me and said, Dad, I want to be president, I don't know how to help them. I've never been president. How would I know how to become president? Here's what I do know. I know how not to be president. So you want to become an alcoholic and a drug and beat your loved ones? Shoot, dude, I'm telling you, I promise you, you won't be the president. All we do as parents is just block the pitfalls and the pothole. And we say, turn around, children. The glory is out there. I don't know how to help you that much. All I can do is stop you from making the bad decisions. Why? Because we're older. We're older. And we've made more more mistakes. That's, a, that's one of the benefits of being old. We've made mm -hmm. more mistakes. We know where the mistakes are. So it doesn't make, mean we're smarter than you. It just means we know where the mistakes are. So I don't know. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> hey, Will said. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like that philosophy has been with you for a long time. Because, like, you know, if we're talking about your writing, early issues of Spawn, I, I feel like autonomy and and taking responsibility is a pretty heavy topic in in the early part of that story. Would you agree with that? To the extent of if my aggravation personally is that I'd like to do stories that I would like to draw, I either I only have a couple of choices. I either ask where I'm working if they'll accommodate that request. And sometimes they will, right? I mean, again, some businesses will accommodate an employee's needs. And if they don't, then you either have to find another employer or you just have to do it yourself. Those are, I mean, you're limited in your choices. But here's what won't change the situation. Bitching about it. Okay, cool. So you bitched about it. Now what? And, and it, here, here's, here's something that I've discovered as I've gotten older, just so you gentlemen know. I used to think when I was younger, come on, man, everybody, come on, let's go, right? Right, power to the people, right? Let's, revolution, let's go. And then I have hopefully matured a little bit in that I just go, mm, you know what? And part of it was because I had three kids myself. There's personalities. 
there's personalities and personalities are at times baked. They're just baked. Very tough to take a passive person and at the age of 65, turn them into a madman. No, they've been a gentle, kind, considerate human being for 65 years. Not going to change. You know, might get angry about it a little bit, but never going to, never going to change. So the things that are super easy for a guy like me to do, I now realize that it's just part of my personality, right? Because I am fearless. And I'd say that across the board. Like, I'm not afraid of bullies. I'm not, I mean, my wife said, Todd, you're going to get killed. Somebody's going to kill you because big people accost me on streets and stuff. And I just won't put up with it. And it's like, Todd, that guy would kick your ass, right? I know. I like intellectually, I know he's four inches taller and he's 80 pounds heavier. And he would, he would beat the shit up. But I just won't be afraid. I just won't give the bully that satisfaction. Now, is it smart? No, because I could get my teeth knocked out. Fine. But I'm just saying, I do, I'm devoid of fear. And so at times, that fearlessness has been useful. Why? Because I think, my wife will tell you, I think I can pretty much do anything. Yeah, I can do that. Screw it. They're going to get me mad? I'm going to go do it myself. I'm going to start a company. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go here, whatever. And luckily, I've had enough success. I've got money. I can back it up with my own money and just go, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I never ever, ever think there's going to be one day where I'm not going to succeed until the day comes where I don't succeed. And then I go, oh, man. Now, again, I played baseball. Just so you guys know, there's, you know the competitive is always yeah. like two brothers. Two brothers? What do you talk about? Every day was a competition. And I played baseball. For four years, I got my college paid for playing baseball. You think that there was one single at bat where I thought the pitcher was better than me? <laughs> never. Never. Oh, for four games with three strikeouts? Of course I did. But even on the day where I struck out the first three times, do you think I conceded the fourth at bat? No, I was delusional enough. And there's a fine line between being dedicated and being stubborn and being delusional. We can have that topic. <laughs> and then even on the fourth at bat, I just go, this time for sure, dude. And I get up there and I thought I was going to get them the fourth time. And sometimes they'd strike me up the fourth time. <laughs> and then when the game was over, I'd tip my hat and I'd go, dude was better than me today, but not for one second while we were playing the game, not for one second. So to me, business is just playing games, right? And I'm just like, they're the bad guys. They're the competition and we got to outscore them today. Let's go. What do we got to do? Right? <laughs> right. Let's go. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. That's okay. I, I can take, I can, I can take the losses. And I, and here's here's the piece. Here's the piece of which I tell everybody, even my own employee. I think everybody should be an entrepreneur at least once. Because I think almost every human being can accept failure when they know they were in the pilot seat of that field. They were the ones making mm, yeah. the decisions. Because now the only person they get to blame is the person that they basically look in the mirror with, right? So it, it's way easier to swallow a failure in which I made because at the end of the day, I love me. I'm never kicking me out. Oh, and by the way, even if I don't love me, I'm stuck with me till I die. <laughs> like you good, you two gentlemen, at the end of this conversation, end of this day, at any time in your life, you can say, that Todd's a crazy dude. I don't want to hang out with him. And you get to walk away. I never get to walk away. <laughs> so at some point, you got to just like Whitney Hughes, you got to learn to love yourself first before you can sort of love the rest of it, right? Yeah, so I yeah. just, I can't get mad at myself too long. So I'm like, yeah, 
So have I succeeded every time? Of course not. Have I failed? Many, 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 many times. Have I made horrible decisions? Of course I have. Luckily, I make more right decisions than wrong. And mm. so the batting average is not bad. So you you just accept that part of the equation is you're going to get failures along the way. You just treat yourself, maybe bad analogy, you just treat yourself like a Mexican cartel. You just go, of course, some of the drugs are going to get stuck, stuck at the border and caught. But 94% got across. It was it's good for the, like, it's okay. They're okay with the six percent. Right. I'm okay with this with the 10, 20 percent failures that I have because the other eighty percent work. So Todd, you've had this competitive spirit your whole life basically. When do you begin to experiment creatively and maybe start drawing and write a little bit? Oh, since day one, like, like I told you, I was drawing naked willies in kindergarten. Here's what I know. One, in kindergarten, I won an award for best painting in the area, right? First time I ever went to a baseball game, we were living in Anaheim, California, and I went to my first baseball game. Because I'd won, and it was a baseball player I'd painted, and they hung it up in the stadium. So my dad says, hey, you want to go to a game? You can see your painting. And I was like, oh, man, cool. It was my painting, but even more so, oh, my God, baseball right? Because my dad had a black and white TV and I got to see baseball in color. I mean, this is that moment in The Wizard of Oz where she comes out of the black and white into the color. I, it was it was life-changing to me. But I also recall, which is weird, some of the things you remember in kindergarten where we have to draw, again, you know, everybody painted in kindergarten, right? Like, let's paint some farm animal or paint whatever. And so I did a, I think we were supposed to do a cow out in the pasture. I painted it, and then I remember the teacher coming. I don't know why. I don't, I don't remember why I remember that. But the teacher looked at me, and she went, oh, man, that's too bad, Todd. And I went, what? And she goes, well, you know, you know, the sky is blue. It's got some blue. It's got some blue in it. And, you know, everything is green. You can understand, like at five years old, the typical way of drawing is you got a piece of paper, you draw a straight line, you draw the cow, here's the grass, and here's the sky, right? And I had put a little bit of a tree in there, so it was a lot of green. But I was like, no, teacher, no, 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 no. The reason you can't see the sky is because I'm in the tree and I'm looking down at the cow. I didn't know the terminology, but it was a perspective. I was doing a down shot. So in my mind, if you're in a tree and you're looking down, there's no, you're not looking up at the sky. So of course, the, it would all be green, right? To be the cow. I don't know if I did the cow in perspective, but I, there was a cow and then it was all, but the thought process was already there. And what seemed wrong was just maybe a little bit of advanced sort of skill over some of the other kids in the class. And then I become the proverbial best artist in the class, right? And doodle the shit out of stuff, always doodling. And then at 16, start collecting comic books, American comic books, which is a style. And I just sort of got smitten by the comic books and went, I'm going to teach myself how to draw superhero comic book stuff. And then I just became, as you can imagine, fanatical about teaching myself <laughs> that style to the point that I did it for years. And then when I was in college, I knew I had four years to send off my samples. And I sent off hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of samples and got hundreds and hundreds of rejections. But I didn't care because I was in school. I had four years. And three weeks before I graduate, I get a phone call after literally hundreds and hundreds of rejections. And I had sent my samples to every company, every editor, month in and month out. I was relentless, gentlemen. I was relentless. <laughs> and I, I, there's a part of me that thinks they gave me a job because they just went, over the love of God, 
I just feel like at one at one at one meeting they had like all the Marvel editors and they go, Oh my god, we got fifteen editors and we get fifteen fucking packages from this kid every month. Could somebody just give him a job so we get one package? This guy <laughs> is just killing way too many trees, sending us package after package after package. So I don't know how they got to their resolution. There was a little bit of one of the samples I had was this character called Coyote that was at the Epic line at Marvel at that point. And so I sent it to the X-Men office and Anna Sente, who was right next door to the Epic office, walked it over to Archie Goodwin. Archie Goodwin went, hey, that looks like Coyote. I'm going to send it to Steve Englehart, who was the one, it was called Steve Englehart's Coyote. I'm going to send it to Steve, see if he needs any art. And he sent it to Steve, and Steve didn't need somebody to do Coyote, but he needed somebody to do 10 pages in the backup, and that was it. That was the phone call. I saw your Coyote. You're not, I don't need anybody to draw Coyote, but you want to draw 10 pages of another character. And so then that was it. That was the beginning of the career before I graduate, going, oh, cool. Uh, you know, I mean, I got a degree. I, I, you know, I thought I was going to be a graphic designer, but I never had to go get, quote, unquote, a real job. It's no uh, secret, Todd, that you started working on Spawn when you were a teenager. It was in your head. What were the earliest nuggets that you remember of uh, inspiration for the character? At that point, I just started dating my girlfriend who would, you know, seven years later become my wife. So it, it, it's odd because I actually put the story away for a while. When I came back in 1992 and just sort of went, eh, here's the story. And I went back and actually reread because I, I started a 50-page comic book that I still have. <laughs> when I was 16, 17, I was, I was talking to somebody the other day, somebody in, in the business and go, you should, you should finish that book and print it, right? You're a 16 year old spawn comic. Yeah, you should. Yeah. You still have all the pages. <laughs> it was based in space because at that point, Star Wars had just sort of come <laughs> on the, the scene. So this is how old I am, right? I'm going way back to the beginning of Star Wars. But interestingly, the concept was still the same. He was burnt underneath the costume and he sort of had come back for the love of his life and sort of got tripped along the way. So some of the core pieces of it were still there. And oddly enough, if you look at that very first drawing that I, or the very first, would have been the first cover, I still have. Kinda is the same costume. The only thing I added was some chains and some spikes, right? Just to sex them up a little bit. But I even had a logo with a skull on the center. Today is still the logo. So I don't know, I, I it must have burnt into my psyche a little bit more than I thought, because even 15 years later, 14 years later, when I end up pulling them out and going, hey, we're at Image Comic Book, it's now 1992. I didn't really go back and refresh myself. I just liked the character design. And so I, I went and then I was surprised. I was probably on issue four or five when I sort of said, maybe I should go read what it was I wrote when I was 16. And I, it was actually a little shocking to me how close some of the big moments were there, because I was just I just thought he looked cool, which is sort of why I wanted to make him my first character image. You mentioned earlier that you were not, you weren't really raised in the church. I think you said you're, you nope. know, you're not a believer in everything. I might be the least believer on the planet. So. Right. <laughs> How did the religious elements of Spawn come into play then? Was that just purely fantasy, or were there were there reasons you wanted to go that route? Yeah, yeah. There were a couple. There were a couple reasons. One. And, and this is interesting, I've said before, of course it has to be a guy like me that's going to mess with sort of things like heaven and hell, because right. I don't think I'm on any, there's no blasphemy for me, right? right? I just like, you know, we're like, I think somebody else that was that's a true believer would be at times a little timid, because they're like, oh, I was taught that way, and I don't know, where I just like, I think it's all open, it's all good fodder. 
And so the concept of it was was a couple. One we sort of taught a couple of things when we're when we're sort of younger or whatever else. But one of the things is like, you know, all oh, corporations, the government, they're sort of bad for you or whatever. So if you take that to the next level, right, you go, okay, Superman and Batman can't go against corporations and government. Whether I agree with the premise or not, we just like to say things like that as a society. And we go, okay, fine. But then it's like, well, no, it has to be something bigger than that. So it has to be like a villain running a corporation or a government, right? You have to have your Doc Doom and you have to have your Kingpin and those kinds of characters, your Lex Luthers. But then I went, well, everybody else is doing that. What's the what's the next level? Yeah, like, so I was just trying to keep upping this is the competitive nature. I was just trying to up the level. So what's the level of bad and good and evil? And at some point I just went, oh, that's upstairs and downstairs, right? Everybody's taught taught that, whether you agree with it or not, we're all taught it. So it's like, oh man, if I put him in a position where someday he can solve how to rid the universe of evil, he will be the greatest hero of all time, right? Batman, Superman, they're just stopping bank robbers. What do I care? My guy basically got rid of evil. And so I just gave him a big, giant, almost probably possible mission what he would like to do but within that confine then and i've said before spawn is just me he didn't really care he didn't at the beginning for about 200 200 the issue he didn't really care about that right he's just like right. whatever heaven hell whatever play your game leave me out just leave me alone i don't need to be a part of this leave me alone so he didn't really care and to be clear he looked at heaven and hell as the exact same thing I've said it before. Heaven and Hell are just and Spawn are just the exact same thing to Alice. In reality, in the comic book, they are. It's just one's got a better PR firm. So one just like sells it a lot better. He's a way better salesperson, right? But if you go through the checklist and you have the two of them there, Cain and Abel, Heaven, Heaven and Hell, Satan, God, whatever terminology you want to use. Like, uh, raise your hand. Uh, you would like to dominate your opponent. Okay, they're both going to raise their hand. You would like everybody on the planet Earth to bend the knee to you. They're both going to raise their hand. You would like to basically build an army so that when Armageddon comes, you can make sure that you're going to be sitting at the at the head of the table and you're going to be the king. They're both going to put, like, there's nothing There's nothing that the other guy doesn't want, that the other guy does. I mean, they're under the guise of it a little bit. So to, to spawn, he's like, I don't care, heaven. Get out of my face. I don't care how. Get out of my face. I, I, and this is just going back to, I think, most human beings. I just want to lead my own life. I just, I just like to make my own mistakes and maybe make some good decisions and get temptation out of the way, which is what I treat heaven and hell. They're just temptation. And Spawn's theory, Al Simmons' theory is just get off the planet, leave us alone. We are flawed beings, and I'm sure we'll blow up the planet someday because it's just we're knucklehead. But in the meantime, let us just let us just live our lives. Let us just stop with all of your interference, right? Get away, get away, get away. But he, but for 250 issues, he was sort of passive. I would call him passive. And then he got to the point where he just came back and he just sort of matured because I go, oh, he's been around for this long. He's got to make a decision. His wife died. So it's not like he can sit there and lament about his wife because his wife is dead. I mean, he still pines for her, but she's dead. And so it's like he's never going to get remarried to her. She's dead. So that peace that drove him for so long is gone. So now all he can do is say, I don't want anybody to go through the experience that I did because it's horrible. So all I can do is try and flush this temptation, good, bad, or indifferent, 
off Earth, right? Oh, by the way, which is why I expanded the books, I need more people than just me. I understand now, I'm mature enough to know that it's just not one person. Oh, by the way, I may make the wrong mistake and may get killed. So I'm going to need people that are going to be able to keep the legacy going on. Okay, and I'm a willing participant for the first time. Before, I was like, guys, if you want to go play football, go play football. What do I care? I don't want to be a part of it. But now he accepts that he will never be normal. He will never be human. He will never be married to his wife again. And so all he can do is just try and squeegee off earth all of the forces that basically try and manipulate us every day. And that's where he's at. And on top of that, he then went and read the rule book. And now he knows the game. Before, he was like, I don't care. And they had the edge because they were able to play. But now he knows the game. And it's like, shit, dude. So now for 250 issues where he was saying, just leave me alone, just leave me alone, he's actually going to flip that. And he's going to come after them. He's going to make them say what he used to say. Hey, Spawn, what are you doing? Just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. And he's not going <laughs> to. Any more than they left him. Any more than they left him alone. He's just going to go, no, no, you're going to feel what I felt. Here we go. Until you walk away and you leave us alone, you get off this planet. No, I'm never going to leave you alone. That's it. That's where we're at. Todd, you've uh, illustrated some classic comic book characters. What I wanted to ask you is when you're drawing a character, say, some, take someone like Spider-Man, mm-hmm. how do you toe the line between staying true to the original concepts and designs and putting your own stamp on things? You don't know until you get in trouble, I guess. <laughs> that was what I was getting at. Have you gotten in trouble before? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. What are you talking about? I've, I've told the story when I was doing Spider-Man, how... how how many times I got called in the office. Every time I went into the office, I got called into the into the upper office and got the finger wagged at me because I was messing with tradition. Yeah, so I guess I, I, I got out of their comfort zone. I didn't think I was doing anything that big of a deal. So in my mind, it was like, so I nudged it a little bit to the left. Okay, where, you know, they thought I had nudged it four feet. I, I thought I only nudged it two inches. So everybody's perception is different on you know certain words right big tall strong handsome you know whatever like and so my altering spider-man which i thought was only a little bit sort of rattled the 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 sort of establishment there and i understand in hindsight you know spider-man was their corporate icon he was on their checks their stationery, their <laughs> 90-day weekly reports because they were a public company at that point he was he was sort of the stamp he was the horse you know, in the oval for um, Ford Motor Company. I was messing with it. And okay, the, the problem was, and the conflict was, that messing with that logo increased sales. So it would be like, Todd, you're messing with the Mustang logo for Ford. But I go, yeah, but ever since I've done that, sales have gone up and you're selling more cars. So the question is, which is where the conflict came in, are we in the business of making sure the logo stays the same? Or are we in the business of some fucking cars for it? Like, and so for Marvel, it was, I don't know. I thought you hired me to sell comic books. Silly me. Silly me. And if you look, I saw at times during that run, I was selling more comic books than any human being they employed. Why are we having this conversation? Why do you care how I sell the most comic books? I mean, I think you should be plotting and cheerleading and, and advertising it. You're not doing any of that. But I think that should be the, you know, some of the first step that you're telling me that I'm somehow the bad guy here, that we're in the office and you're wagging your finger at me because I'm selling more 
fucking comic books than anybody you employ? Ah, ah, I guess it depends. What's the goal? Yeah. What is the goal? I thought the goal was that there was a party at Bill's house at 10 o'clock. And we were all going toward that goal. In this case, the goal is sell comic books. That's the equivalent of Bill's party. And I got to the party and I got there on time and I helped make the party a success. And all you cared about was that I didn't take the same streets and the same highways that you took to get to the party. I didn't know it was about the journey. I thought it was about the goal. And the goal is to sell comics. You don't have to like me. You don't have to like my attitude. You don't have to even like my drawing style. But the audience does. Who cares? They did. The answer was they did. So they just wore me out. Gentlemen, they just wore me out. I've said before, I've talked to business classes with my wife bringing me in to talk to her classes. I go, look, I'm, I'm getting to be an old man. I'm going to tell you a couple of truisms that I think location, 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 that's it. And death and taxes, that's it, right? There's only, it's, it's, it's weird. There's like really only 200% in the world, right? There's only 200%. One, we're all going to die. Done. Just check that box. Just a matter of one. Check it. The other one is change. That's the only hundred percenter other than death, change. And yeah, and we know that to be true because otherwise we'd all be in caves right now. We know that change not only is it inevitable, but it's been happening since the dawn of man. We know it because we've got books that tell us and we can see it with our own eyes, even within our own lifetime, sometimes within our, a decade, we can see the change. And yet I, I tell the students, I think your biggest enemy you will encounter in your life is status quo. People clinging to yesterday because it's the safe, easy route. I've always been like somebody who didn't care about yesterday. I didn't care about yesterday. Again, going back to the baseball. I didn't care I struck out four times. Tomorrow's a new day. <laughs> Woo! I'm going to be great. I don't care. To, like the, the, to me, the thrill of creating, the thrill of coming up with ideas is in the future is still tomorrow for me. I'm, I still think I got 30, 40 good years in me. I'm only halfway through this career, right? So whatever right. people think I've done, dude, that's the halfway mark. Like, come on, man. I, I hope to do my best work 20 years from now. Okay, cool. But what happens is corporations, business, in the sake of maintaining profits, sometimes keeping your job, whatever it is, that people then go, don't take risks. And anybody who tries to mess with that become people like me, which are, disruptors and bad apples and you know got a bad attitude why do you got to rock the boat Todd all those terms that they give to people like me here's what I know nobody as far as I know historically has made any significant change in the world and I'm not saying I'm gonna I'm, so don't I'm not putting myself into this equation I'm just saying something out loud nobody has made any significant change in the world and was liked by all you have to stop trying to be liked. I don't care. <laughs> and I've said it before. I put out my cover. This is my cover of my new comic book. I put it out on Instagram. People go, I know my peers go, Todd, you don't seem to get upset, you know, over social media and stuff. I don't. And the reason is because I don't read it. I don't read any of the comments. Because <laughs> I assume people will vote with their dollars. If they don't like it, they won't buy it. Right. I'll, I'll get the data. I'm going to get the data. But but this, the, the, the false assumption, the false assumption here is that I'm putting up my cover to get some kind of approval. 
I'm not. I'm not. This is this is where guys, you got to shake your head. You're you're coming from a different perspective than me. I'm putting up that cover for only one reason to show you what the cover looks like for the book coming out next month. Has a matter of fact. This is the cover. I just posted it. This is the cover right here, right here. Now, you have two choices. One, you can like it, dislike it, whatever else, and not buy it. And if you don't, to some extent, I don't care why. I'm not changing a line on this cover. The other option is you like it, you think it's cool, you like the character, you're going to buy it. I don't care why you're going to buy it either. I'm not changing a line on that cover. So I'm not putting it up there for you to say, Todd, you're great, or to say, Todd, you suck. I'm saying that's the cover. That's the cover. <laughs> and then tomorrow I'm going to do another one and I'll put up another cover and that's it. And I don't need people to like me or whatever. I don't need that in my life. I look at, I like, I told you, I love me way too much. I don't care if nobody else likes me. My, my wife likes me and I like me. I'm good. I am good at that. My kids seem to tolerate me. I'm good. <laughs> Right. So I'm I'm there. And I, I was at San Diego and I go, here's why it's just math. This is all just math to me. I've got a million people following me, two million people follow me, whatever. Who cares? OK, two million people. And if you take two million people and you divide it by the population of the world, 8.1 billion, and you take that fraction and you round it to the nearest whole number, you know what the number is? Zero. <laughs> Zero. So, 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 so no matter what happens, when you round it up, it's zero. So now take that theory. Okay, I put up a cover. All two million people love it. The math is still zero. I'm still a zero today. Now, I put it up and all two million people hate it. I'm still a zero. On my best day, I am a zero. And on my worst day, I'm a zero. And once you accept that you don't matter, and I don't, then what you do get to do then at that point is be fearless and go, well, then I'm going to enjoy my life because it doesn't matter if they all love it and they all hate it. It doesn't really matter because it adds up to zero. <laughs> well said. <laughs> When's the motivational speaker tour starting, by the way? Because <laughs> you could certainly do it. I just like, it, do you know how liberating it is once you know that the thoughts of others on a big scale don't matter. You then get to just enjoy your life regardless of what others think of you. But now we're coming back to what I said earlier, personality. Some people, that's easy for a guy like me to do because I've been like that my whole life. But other people are way more sensitive. I get it. So I can't, I can't teach you to ignore the feelings of others to the extent that I do. I can't. Right. And I'm not even saying it's good or it's healthy. Just be clear. I don't even look at I don't want anybody to be like Todd, not even my own children. Right. Because <laughs> I know I'm a mad, I know I'm a madman. So but I know I know what my own personal motivations are. I just set goals and I everything else like the red Corvette is white noise. And I've said before, if you have never been the first one to be on a dance floor, you may not be built to be an entrepreneur. To me, the easiest criteria I can figure out, because the reason you've never been the first one on the dance floor is because you cared about something in that room, which is weird. Because when I go dancing with my wife, there's only one goal, me, my wife, and dancing. Nine o'clock, the band comes out, the band starts playing, and guess what? Nobody wants to go dancing. You know who is? Honey, 
It's nine o'clock. They're playing music. We came to dance. Let's go. Let's attain the goal. There's only one goal. We're going to dance tonight. Okay. Now, was my goal to dance and be liked by people in the room? No, that wasn't the goal. Was my goal to dance and have people think that I'm the worst dancer they've ever seen? No, my goal was to dance with my wife. And oh, by the way, I don't even give a fuck who the people are in that room. (laughs) Strangers to me. They're strangers. So if they think that I'm Fred Astaire, I don't care. And if they think that I'm the wonkiest, messed up white dancer guy, man, dude, I don't care. Like, how, why would I give any power I want to a stranger? Why would I give any power of my life to a stranger? I refuse. So you know what? If everybody in this room doesn't want to dance, I don't care. I'm dancing until midnight with my wife. I guess we're going to have the whole floor to ourselves. But then you've got the next tier of people who come up and come up, come up. And then when it's really sort of super busy, then most people come up. Why? Because then they can hide. And and it's like, so if you want things to be easy, then I'm telling you, you're not built to be an entrepreneur. When Steve Jobs came along and said, man, I'm going to, I'm going to go into the computer business. I'm going to go up against IBM. You think IBM said, good for you, Steve. Good for you. You know what? Yeah. Are you out of your mind? They put up every impediment that they could. Everybody who's ever in first will basically try and trip you as you pass them. And oh, before you even get up to their heels, everybody's going to tell you it's impossible. You can't do it. What are you doing? You're in your garage. What are you talking about? What are you going to call it? You're going to call it, name it after a fruit? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, and, and on and on and on. And then guess what happens? Just like history, it repeats itself for the thousands, if not the millionth time. It actually worked, change. And somebody showed that there was a better innovation, a better technology, a better way of doing it, whatever it is. The wheel comes along. Oh, wow, shit. Oh, shit. So, and all of a sudden we go. Now, the other piece, I'm getting old enough, and then I'll shut up, is the whole like this young generation i was just had a conversation with somebody the other day that young generation you know they're so entitled whatever first off if we have entitled children it was because we the parents made them that way so we're the guilty ones so it's weird that us parents don't want to take any of the blame for this new generation which is an odd concept but i don't think that the new generation is anything but what they are because the new generation is always the laziest schmucks why because that was my generation. We listened to rock and roll and we wore bell bottoms and we unbuttoned our shirt up to here and we let our hair grow long. Oh my God, deviants that we were. And to me, I've said before, this conversation about the next generation being lazy has been there, I think, I don't know, name's Todd, only rhymes with God, but I think it's been there since the dawn of man. First caveman, honey, stay here. You go slay the lion, gonna bring some food. He goes and wrestles that lion dead. Took him about three days and hours and hours and he's fucking cut up. And he kills that lion, feeds his family. And then years go by and he's sitting there with his buddies and he's going, you know this new generation, you know what these new cavemen are doing? They sit there and they fucking, they got themselves a rock. I did it with my bare hands. Lazy sons of bitches needing a rock. <laughs> and then the rock guy is like, you know what these lazy new generation guys are doing? They take the rock and they shave it down. And it's like a little dagger now. 
right? Like, I used to have to hit it and hit it and hit it with that rock. Like, <laughs> these sons of bitches. And the dagger guy goes, you know what these lazy cavemen are doing now? They're taking that dagger and then they're putting it on a stick and they're wrapping it and they're calling it a spear. They don't even got to stab the lion. I, at least I used to have to get close. Look at my scars. I used to have to get close <laughs> and on and on and on. I used to walk to my girlfriends. Now they take a horse, the lazy bastard. And the horse guy, now they take a car, the lazy bastard. And now the car guy, now they've got a telephone. They don't even got to have to walk there. They don't have to get there. They don't even have to transport. They can just talk. You know what each one of those things was? It wasn't a laziness. It was an efficiency. And every time an efficiency comes in, somehow we're the lazy one. Because we won't dig the hole manually with a small shovel this big. We've decided to make the shovel this big. We're lazy. And then eventually somebody says, well, you can make it way bigger than that if you put it on a machine. So right. in that same line of thought, I mean, Image Comics these days, especially like the last decade, are kind of on the forefront of cutting edge creator-owned comics. What do you think about like the youngest artists and, and writers you've got with Image now? I mean, what, what kind of innovations have you seen? I don't, I don't know. In all honesty, I don't know that you need an innovation. The medium is quite, quite simple. Words and pictures combined. That's it. That's the medium. The only difference is the way you present the words and the picture. So image comic books that started off, you guys know, you know, basically being a superhero bent company, because that's who we were when we left Marvel. Right, we were all right. doing some of the top, you know, Spider-Man, X-Men book. It, we're now very uh, eclectic. I think comic books are, and I've said before, sort of like when I used to go to Blockbuster. Go with your grandma, and you could go with your five-year-old, and you could say, hey, go up and down the aisle, as long as you're in the right aisle, and in 10 minutes, pick your movie and come here, and uh, we gotta, we got to check out. And everybody still comes with a round silver disc. The only difference is the content. Grandma picks something that she liked, I pick something I like, and my kid picks something they like. And I assume it was appropriate for each one of us. The format of the DVD was still the same. And so comic books, the format is the same. The only difference is the content. And so what are the innovations of the content? I don't know. I, they, they could potentially be boundless if people have the imagination. I, 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 but I've got to tell you, gentlemen, I don't think I've invented anything original in my entire life. Just never. Like, it's hard for me to even imagine how, like, how you invent in a vacuum. Right. Everything you come up with is based upon what you've already seen or what you know about. You're just an amalgamation of all your life experiences. And you're, to some extent, a, a byproduct of your environment. Some people like to argue with that, but it's strange that there's so many Green Bay Packer fans in Wisconsin. That's a really big coincidence, I think. So, uh, you know, we're in San Diego, not a lot of Packers fans. But you go ahead and tell me that, that it doesn't make a difference, right? That people who live in India are mostly Muslims, and people who live in Texas are Christians. Like, that really worked out really well, right? No, you're part of your environment. What I've done, what I think other people have done with some of their books, is they just go, how do you take words and pictures and just make it maybe a little more interesting or a little more uh, visually appealing or, you know, or bring in a character that's doing something that normally is out of the ordinary, not unique, but out of the ordinary for what we're used to in our genre. 
And if you just mix and match three or four things and put them together, it looks original. You took what already exists, but you put it in a combination that people haven't seen before. And the okay. combination always gets way more credit for being original and big. And I think I've been the byproduct of way more kind words, given that I don't think I've done anything original. Because I, you know, I used Steve Jobs again for that one when they came out with the iPhone. They were late to the game with the iPhone. And Steve Jobs got up there and had to sell the iPhone. And he says, hey, guess what? You can text on it. And the audience and the critics were like, Steve, cell phones have been texting forever, right? Yeah, 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 but you can do email. They all do that, Steve. Yeah, but you can go on the internet. They all do that, Steve. Yeah, but you can you can download music. They all do that. Well, you can take pictures. They all do that, Steve. They all do that. What did he do with his phone? It's only two things. But the one that blew people, he said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 you're right. My phone does exactly what everybody else is doing, except for one thing. When they type hi mom for a text, guess what? They have to touch plastic. Little plastic buttons. Guess what? On mine? Glass. You're still typing H-I space M-O-M. It's just my finger is touching a different substance. That was it. That was it. I mean, they did the pinch zoom. Uh, <laughs> but that was it. That was it. Right. And, and he built an empire to the point that he took over an entire industry, coming that he was one of the late people coming into the race. So you, this is what I tell young people. Stop trying to invent. Just take what is already there and make it more efficient or make it sexier. And if you do that, people will follow. I, don't do, I know we got to let you get out of here, Todd. So just to put a bow on everything here, what's on the horizon for you? Everything. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is recorded or not, but today... Today, the Spawn character comes in uh, Call of Duty. He's part of their new uh, battle path. So first time they've ever put an outside brand in one of their battle passes. So Spawn, Al Simmons, and a couple other surprises are going to be in the game today. So that's the that's sort of the big entertainment piece today. So Spawn hanging out with the AAA brand. Hopefully we'll introduce my character to people who, again, is part of me being a zero, you know, people in Poland and Portuguese and, or Portugal and Bosnia and Czech Republic, all of a sudden are going to get introduced to the word spawn. And, and then hopefully the reason that any of that matters is that if we can expose another 10 million people to the word and the brand and they think it's cool and they talk to their friends and go, man, you should see this character in my video game, super cool. I don't know what his name is, Prawn or Spam or something like that. <laughs> you, know, you can play him. But then all of a sudden, maybe in you know, the not-too-distant future, they see a movie trailer, and they go, wow, that's that guy from my video game. I don't care how you get into the world, the mythology of Spawn. I'm, I'm not biased, right? I don't care how you got there. The more, the merrier. And then if we can have more eyeballs, be curious about the the next big adventure to the movie and again they just settled well not a hundred percent but they're settling the writer's strike as we speak right and then yeah and then my guess is in quick order they'll figure out the actors want it. and we'll be back where we were five months ago which was to finish the script because it's almost complete and then go into hollywood and find a buyer so that that the next big announcement will just be we found a buyer we've got our money and we've got a production date let's go Excited! Hell yeah! And that and that then takes Spawn to a whole nother level because, you know, 
I tell people I did comic books and my name's Todd or whatever. Most people don't care. I draw spawn. Most people don't care. But if I say I created, you know, the visual look of Venom, what? Venom? I saw that movie, mm-hmm. right? So movie and music and TV have this giant sort of bandwidth of people. Yeah. Who, and so if you can get in, tap, tap into those in a successful way, I mean, obviously, if we came out with a movie, it would have to be successful. Then Spawn becomes part of sort of the zeitgeist that's out there that people yeah. will, will talk about. So we're still, like I said, we, I still am not at the top of the mountain. We still got to get there. Well, Todd, it's been a pleasure talking with you, man. Thank you for going over a little with us. Thank you so much, sir. Well, Thank cool, you so man. much, Todd. All right, you guys be good. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Todd. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.